The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Amen, church. Please remain standing with me this morning as we read John chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. May be seated. Father, if it were a thing made up by men, no one would believe it. The idea that the perfect and holy and righteous and just God of the universe would send his son into a world stained and marred by sin to a people dead set and rebelling against him it would be unbelievable that that son would come bringing with him anything other than destruction anything other than punishment and yet father your son came in mercy and meekness and humility steadfast love and not only lavish that love upon these undeserved people but laid down his life died like a common sinner a cursed man hanging upon a tree and then offered to exchange places as he took our sin and our rebellion and our curse upon himself and offered us his perfect righteousness. Your blessings, Father, that it's an unimaginable tale were it not true. So as we see this truth playing out in, in the history, this thing happened as recorded in these words. Father, I pray that you would help us to base all our hope, all our trust, and all our eternity in that truth. Father, give us eyes to see now, and ears to hear, and hearts to believe. For it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So we spent our time together on the last Lord's Day studying the third stage of Jesus' civil trial. Now the Lord has already been accused, found guilty, and condemned. The charge, of course, was blasphemy. 
Jesus claimed to be the son of God. The way John recorded it back in the fifth chapter of his gospel was this. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus would offer no defense. He would give no denial. In fact, he would confess, yes, indeed, I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. And someday you shall see me seated seated at my Father's right hand, the position of power and authority and glory. And you shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. Now, to be clear, this was not blasphemy because Jesus is the Christ. He is the infinite and eternal Son of God, equal with the Father in his very nature. But these men couldn't see this. They were so blinded. They were blinded by sin, specifically the sin of envy, as we learned last week. Their hearts were so hardened that they saw in Jesus Christ nothing but a man, but not just a man, a man deserving of death. But these Jewish leaders, they would not be the ones to kill Jesus. Despite the fact that God's law allowed for capital punishment, Despite the fact that the Roman governor in charge of Judea had given them implicit permission to do whatever they wanted with this man called Jesus, they continued to protest. It is not lawful for us to take the life of a man. Now it seems from a purely human perspective, just looking at it from earthly terms, it seems as though the reason why these men would not stone Jesus the way that they had Stephen, why they would not stone Jesus the way they had so often tried to stone the apostle Paul, It seems from my perspective, from our perspective, as if this was driven by nothing but fear, that these men were afraid of the crowds that followed after Jesus. But God makes clear to us in John chapter 18, verse 32, this, this denial, this refusal, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus would die in exactly the way that had been ordained by the Father, in exactly the way that he had predicted all the way back in John 3, 14, where he said, that he would not die by stoning, that the Son of Man would lay down his life, that he would die as he was lifted up like that bronze serpent in the wilderness. That the fear of this religious council, that the envy of the Sanhedrin, this was all playing out exactly as God had predestined. This thing was all going exactly as Jesus had planned. And so just as Jesus had promised, he is handed over to the Gentiles. Specifically, he is handed over to the Roman governor of the region of Judea, a man called Pilate. He's been bound and led there to the Praetorium, to Pilate's headquarters. Now, the Jewish leaders, they knew that Pilate was going to care very little about charges of blasphemy. They knew that Pilate carried very little about the Jewish law. And so if they were going to catch the attention of the Romans, they had to speak Pilate's language. So we read that the Sanhedrin, they issued many charges against Jesus. Luke gives us a subset of that as he, as he really hones in on three. They say that we have found this man misleading our nation. We have found this man forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. And we have found this man saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now Pilate would focus in on the third of those accusations. He turned and looked to Jesus and he said, You? Are you the king of the Jews? To which Jesus responded, It is as you have said. Now, just as with the ecclesiastical trial, Jesus would not answer any of these other charges. It was only with regards to his identity, only with regards to his person, that Jesus would utter a word. Jesus would make no defense. He would offer no denial. He would not even utter a word with regards to these other charges. He would not do anything that might hinder him from going to the cross. And yet, as this Gentile ruler, this man who knew nothing of the law of God, who cared nothing 
for the law and the rule, the moral order that God had passed in this world, this man who had been placed in responsibility, this position of hearing the charges and then judging Jesus, he declared to this people, I find no guilt in this man. Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. Pilate knew that Jesus had done nothing deserving of death, and Pilate desperately wanted to let Jesus go. But the council would not take no for an answer. They kept bringing even further accusations. Now, Pilate knew that he was in a bad spot. You see, Pilate's conscience was working against him. Pilate's conscience was telling him that Jesus was an innocent man, and it would not be right for him to die. But he knew that the crowd was moving towards an uprising. He knew that if this crowd were to lead a rebellion against him, that Rome would take note. And this could mean that he would be removed from his position at best, or he might lose his life at worst. But eventually, Pilate saw a way out. You see, he learned that Jesus was a Galilean. He learned that any of the crimes he committed, surely they fell under the jurisdiction of the governor of, of, of Galilee, a man called Herod Antipas. Knowing that Herod Antipas was in town for the feast of Passover, Pilate sees his opening. He's going to send this man there, and then maybe this man called Herod, maybe he can hear the case. Maybe he can make some sense of it. Maybe he can pass a judgment in a way that will not burn down the world. This was the second phase of this civil trial. Now, Herod was excited to see Jesus. He had longed to see Jesus, like many others, that maybe he would perform some kind of miracle, that maybe he would see some kind of sign from the hands of this miracle-working man called Jesus. But just as before, Jesus would not open his mouth. He would not utter a defense. And so we find that Herod and the soldiers, they mocked Jesus. They treated the Lord with contempt, and then they dressed him in splendid clothing and sent him back to Pilate. It's at that point that Pilate called together the chief priests and the scribes and all the elders, and he said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examination, behold, I do not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he has sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserved death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Pilate was seeking to appease the mob. It was clear that Jesus was innocent. Both Herod and Pilate had come to that conclusion. And so in an attempt to calm his own conscience and to appease the mob, to satisfy the crowd that was demanding the death of Jesus, he determined that he was going to punish him. He wouldn't kill him, perhaps just a light beating, and then he would release him. So it's at that point that we ran out of time. And so we return to that same section of Scripture. I ask you to stand to your feet, please. As we return to the 15th chapter of Mark's gospel, we're going to read this entire section again, beginning in verse 6. This is the word of God. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had, been commit, who had committed murder in their insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them as he usually did. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he, perce he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with this man that you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out, crucify him. Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. All God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? 
in it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my Savior? Would you make this book live to me? For it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So as we discussed last week, it was customary practice for Pilate to release one Jewish prisoner each year at the Feast of the Passover. It's a bit like a presidential pardon, something that we experience here in this country. Now apparently the crowd had gathered together. These were the the common folks. These weren't the religious leaders, but apparently a crowd had gathered together at the praetorium, at the place where Pilate was meeting with these people. They had gathered together there and they were asking of him that he would uphold this custom. They were asking of Pilate that he would do as he had always done in releasing one prisoner to them. Now one of the prisoners in custody was this man called Barabbas. The name, as we discovered last week, means son of the father. Some manuscripts have his full name as Jesus Barabbas. Apparently, Barabbas was a notorious prisoner. He had played a part in the insurrection, apparently an insurrection that first century readers would have immediately known about. This was a rebellion against Rome. This was the exact kind of thing that Pilate was worried about. This was the exact kind of thing that Caesar Tiberius would not stand for. This was the exact kind of thing that the Sanhedrin were accusing Jesus of trying to instigate. Now, during this insurrection, Barabbas had apparently killed at least one man because Mark tells us that he was a murderer. John tells us that Barabbas was also a thief. Now this carries much more weight than a, than a pickpocket or, or perhaps a shoplifter. The word is one of a bandit, like a highway robber. This is a violent criminal. Now this uprising, it must have been fairly recent because Rome was not known to waste any time with regards to putting condemned men to death. And so we have to believe that this condemned man, this man called Jesus Barabbas, that he was scheduled to die on this very day, on this afternoon, on this day called Good Friday. Now, you'll recall that the men on the left and the right of Jesus at the crucifixion, they were also identified to us as thieves. Seems to me that these men must have been co-conspirators, that they had all been in the same gang involved in this uprising, that they too were violent men. These were bad dudes. And that on this day, on this afternoon, all three of them were destined to head out to Golgotha where they, they would be, there they would be crucified. But Pilate sees his way out. With the people coming and requesting of him that he would release one prisoner Pilate again thinks this might be my out because he knew that the Sanhedrin were acting out of envy he knew that this was nothing other than selfish jealousy that was driving these men they were jealous of Jesus they were envious of the crowds that he drew they were envious of the fact that people saw him as one that taught with great authority unlike their scribes they were envious of the fact that they could not trip him up in his own words so Pilate must have thought to himself well surely this crowd will see through this They have nothing to gain by crucifying Jesus. They have nothing to gain by going along with the Sanhedrin. And so Pilate presents the people with what he believes has got to be an easy choice. He says there in verse 9, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Now Matthew tells us that this is actually a multiple choice question. Whom should I release? Jesus the Christ? Jesus this man who has healed your sick? Jesus who has fed you bread when you were hungry? Jesus who has set you free from slavery? From slavery? from being under, under the control of demons and unclean spirits, Jesus who calls you to love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as you love yourself, Jesus who has come in meekness, who has dedicated his entire life to showing you the love and compassion of God while doing life with the most sinful men in all of Israel, do you want me to release for you Jesus the innocent or Jesus Barabbas? Barabbas the insurrectionist, Barabbas the thief, Barabbas the murderer, Jesus the innocent or Barabbas the guilty? Who would you have me release to you? Now, as best I can tell, based on my efforts to to try and harmonize the gospel stories together, it seems as though something really interesting happens between the time when Pilate issues this question, 
between a time when Pilate puts this, force, uh, this choice before the people and when they actually give their answer. We read in Matthew 27, verse 19, that while Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now, Mrs. Pilate sends word to her husband, and this poor dude, he is in the middle of a dogfight. He knows that both his political and possibly his physical life is at stake. He is trying desperately to calm his own conscience while at the same time keep this crowd from instigating some kind of riot right there in the middle of Jerusalem. And yet, Pilate's wife has a message. She has a message that she feels so urgently about that she has to get it to him even now as he sits there. And apparently, his wife has had a dream. Now, we don't need to make too much of this dream. We don't need to assume that this is some kind of prophetic dream. We don't assume that this is some kind of supernatural occurrence. Perhaps what's happened is Mrs. Pilate was asleep when Pilate got roused out of bed on Thursday night. You remember that there was an entire Roman cohort that went out to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they would have had to have permission from Pilate in order to take the Roman soldiers out like that. So perhaps all that happened was as Pilate slept, Someone came and woke him up and told him, the Sanhedrin are here and they're requesting a meeting with you. That as Pilate got out of bed, it woke up his wife. Then as he came back to bed, she said, what was that all about? And he said, this man called Jesus, they're going out to arrest him now. We don't know. We're not told. But the reality is that she had a troubling dream. You've been there before. Those dreams that just won't let you rest. They seem to haunt you. You wake up and go back to sleep and they're still there. So this woman, she was, she was tortured, she was tormented, she had grown incredibly uneasy because of this dream that she had had. And so while her husband is still sitting in judgment, while her husband is still sitting on the judgment seat before these Jewish people, she sends word, have nothing to do with this righteous man. Are you sensing the pattern? Herod and Pilate and now Pilate's wife, they all knew. Every one of them knew. One of them was an imposter king. The other two were Gentiles. They were outsiders. They were unclean, uncircumcised Gentiles, those who knew nothing of the law of God, those who knew nothing of the ways of the people of God, and yet they knew. They were deeply convicted and convinced that Jesus is a righteous man. Jesus is innocent. Jesus has done nothing deserving of death. Not only that, but go all the way back to the beginning of Mark's gospel. You see this purpose in Mark's telling of the gospel. He wants us to understand who Jesus is. He wants to give us a clear picture of Jesus and his innocence, his righteousness. And so we read all the way back as Mark chapter 1, the first encounter Jesus has with a man with an unclean spirit. It was there in a synagogue in Capernaum. You recall that Jesus enters in and the man, he cries out, Mark 1 24, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demon knew the demon knew that Jesus was holy. The demon knew that he was the Holy One of God. Even Judas, even the betrayer, even this man that had saw fit to sell Jesus for the price of a slave, even this one that had so betrayed the one that he once called master that he sought to give his life over to these men that he knew were destined to kill him. We read that after Judas changed his mind, after he went back to the council and tried to return the 30 pieces of silver, but before he took his own life, we read that Judas cried out, Matthew 24, 4, 27, 4, excuse me. I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. Church, it's simply undeniable. Even people that care nothing about Jesus Christ, even people that have no desire to truly follow him as Lord, even those that know nothing about the promises of the Old Testament, they continue to come back to the same judgment. Jesus is innocent. Jesus is holy. Jesus is righteous. Jesus has done nothing deserving of death. It is undeniably clear that Jesus was without sin. 
So while Pilate is there doing what judges do, sitting on the judgment seat, he receives this word from his wife. And now while he's away dealing with this message, this word from his wife, Mark tells us in verse 11 that the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release for them Barabbas instead. Friends, do you remember the interactions of, between Jesus and the religious leaders just days earlier on Holy Tuesday as they kept coming to him with questions trying to trip him up and he stepped through without a problem at all and then before leaving the temple complex, he issued a warning to the people. But, but first, he spoke against these religious leaders. He issued some woes. Matthew 23, beginning in verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter it yourself, nor allow those who would enter it to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. This was just a portion of seven woes. This was an absolutely scorching rebuke from Jesus to the religious leaders. And it wasn't for drunkenness. It wasn't for adultery. It wasn't for robbery. It wasn't for murder. It was for shutting the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. These men were so dedicated to building their brand. These people were so dedicated to building their following that they would, drive, they would, they would uh, sail across the ocean. They would go to no ends that they, that they would not go to to make certain that they could win for themselves one more follower, one more convert, one more proselyte. But because they themselves knew nothing of true repentance and faith, because they themselves saw the kingdom of God as nothing but outward ordinances, because they themselves were so self-righteous in their own works that all they were doing was winning for themselves children of hell. This is why he ends this, he ends this rebuke with these words, and often misquoted words, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. How often the prophets have come, how often the word of God has come, how often I have come, and yet you shut the kingdom of heaven in the faces of those who would come in. You continue to do everything that you can to keep them away from me, away from the truth, away from the word of God, because you are so worried about losing your power and your tiny kingdoms that you have built for yourself. Now, Jesus' rebuke of the scribes and the Pharisees and the elders, it does not absolve the average people from their own responsibilities because each man will answer for his own life. So Jesus also warned the people before leaving the temple complex. We read back in Mark chapter 12, he looks at them and he says, watch out, beware. These men, these men that give these outward appearances of personal holiness and righteousness, these men that like to utter forth big and profound prayers in the public square so that people will think that they themselves are truly righteous, these men who fight for the best seats in the synagogues, these men that love the pats on the backs, they love to be recognized as rabbi in the public square, you must be careful and watch out, for these men only care about themselves. These men will devour the resources, the money, the assets of the most vulnerable amongst all of Israel, and in the end, you must know that they will receive the most, the utter, the greater condemnation, but you too will be lost if you don't watch out. So he says to them, beware. In another place, Jesus cautioned them, Matthew 15, 14. He said that the Pharisees were blind guides, that if the blind leave the blind, both will fall into a pit. Jesus was begging these men, be careful. These men are blind. Blind men have no business leading other men. Blind men will not lead you anywhere that you want to go. These are blind men, and they're headed to the pits of hell, and if you follow them, you will end up there too. Dear friends, I told you then, and I tell you again today, you must be very 
very careful who you allowed to lead you. And yet despite his warning, here we are, these hypocrites, these false teachers, these children of hell, these morally blind men that could see nothing but their own desires, the desires of their own flesh. Mark tells us that they're actively working to sway the crowd. They're actively working to persuade these people to reject Jesus and to ask that Barabbas is released to them instead. The Greek word here is anaseo. It means to be stirred up. It means to shake something. It means to be jostled wildly. He's, he's, they're trying to get this crowd worked up. They're inciting them to anger into a revolt. It's like a little boy kicking an ant pile. You notice that these men, they weren't going around amongst the, cloud, the crowd and pleading their case. They weren't going out around the crowd and, 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 logic, uh, and, and issuing a, a logical explanation. They didn't want to sit down and have an argument. They didn't want to bring witnesses. They didn't want to deal with the facts. They wanted a, a crowd, a mob that was so frothing at the mouth that they would demand the death of Jesus. So that's what they did. They stirred up the crowd. Church, you know what this tells me? It tells me that the crowd did not believe, agree with the religious leaders, at least not all of them. It tells me there was some hesitation in their spirit, that there were at least some within the crowd that knew, just like Pilate, just like Pilate's wife, just like Herod, just like Judas, just like the demons, that there were surely some believing Jewish men there in that crowd, and they knew that Jesus was innocent. They knew that he had done nothing deserving of death. But like some kind of profane political caucus, these men went around working the room. Like the serpent in the garden, they were slithering between the people, trying to convince them to join in their rebellion. They were using nothing but fear and greed and just base emotions you can imagine that surely there were some promises that were issued some, surely there were some threats that were made on this day but these men who held positions of leadership these men who set themselves up as stewards of God's word these men who set themselves up as though they would usher people into the kingdom of God they had not only led the people astray by showing them that this is nothing but outward ordinances by showing them that the law was nothing but man-made traditions by showing them that through their own righteousness they could enter into this kingdom but now in the most critical of moments as the Son of God, as the Christ, as the promised Messiah, the King of the Jews, stood before them, they pressured and persuaded and rattled them to the point that they would call for the death of Jesus Christ while asking for the release of a true murderer. And sadly, the people went along. Matthew tells us that Pilate asked them a second time, which of these two do you want me to release for you? And the people said, Barabbas. Luke records that the people cried out together, away with this man. Give us Barabbas, verse 12, back in Mark's gospel. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? Again, church, I ask you to remember what the charge is against Jesus. The religious leaders told Pilate that Jesus was seeking to lead the people astray, that he was forbidding them from paying tribute to Caesar, and that he was setting himself up as a king. In essence, the charge that the Sanhedrin brought against Jesus was that he was guilty of sedition. Now, if you look at this man that they're demanding be released, see these very same men that they charged Jesus with trying to cause an uprising, an insurrection, they're now demanding the release of this man who was in prison for sedition, the very thing that they accused Jesus of, but not just with words, not trying to incite a mob, but actually being a part of the mob, actually murdering men, actually taking his hands and using them for violence, and the very thing that they accused Jesus of possibly trying to get people to do. Is it any wonder Jesus calls these men hypocrites? But Pilate surely had to have been thinking of himself. These people del delivered Jesus to me for judgment. Even at their worst accusations, all they're talking about is words. But this other man has committed real violence. 
He is a murderer. He is a robber. He is a thief. He has actually been a part of a real insurrection. Surely, if they want me to release for them this man called Barabbas, then surely they're going to ask for two. Surely they're going to ask that I release this Jesus to them as well. And so Pilate asked the people. Again, he's not talking to the Sanhedrin anymore. He's done with them. He's looking to the people and he's saying, then what shall I do with the man that you call the king of the Jews? Verse 13, and they cried out again, crucify him. Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? They shouted all the more, crucify him. I would ask you firstly to hear these words and recognize they led to your redemption. This was God's plan for you to have eternal life. The Jewish people rejecting the coming of their king. This temporary hardening that's come upon the people of Israel, as Paul speaks about in Romans 11. Their trespass leading to your salvation. Dear friends, I pray that you see this, and much like Joseph, you can say to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. There's nothing more evil than the demanding of the murder of the infinitely glorious an eternally holy son of God, and yet what they meant for evil, what was evil, God used for good. But dear friends, don't miss the sin. Don't miss the darkness of this moment, this crowd. Now commentators can't agree on who this crowd was. Was this the same crowd that had come into Jerusalem with Jesus on Palm Sunday? Was this the same crowd that less than a week earlier was shouting Hosanna and showing signs of submission? Blessed be the one that comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes, the coming son of David, the king that we have waited for so long. Were these people so fickle that just days later they would go from shouting out Hosanna to crucify him? Or was this an altogether different crowd? Was the crowd that had come from the north into Jerusalem with Jesus, were those people all originating from Galilee? And had this, this group, had this mob, had they sprung forth just from Judea in the south? Were these people all residents of Jerusalem? Was this one crowd or was this two crowds? Dear friends, we aren't told and I don't think it matters. Because we do know that these were the Jewish people. These were the people of the book. These were the people who had the law and the sacrifices and the temples and the prophets. It does not matter that not every single Israelite was packed into that small square on that day. It does not matter if there were not a few people in that crowd that knew that Jesus was innocent. Because if they were, they kept their mouth shut. Even if there were some who objected, you will not find a single word of dissension amongst the group. They united themselves as one singular voice. Truly, this single voice, this is a representation of the whole nation of Israel. As they, under the, leadership, uh, under the leadership of the Sanhedrin, as they cried out to Pilate, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. This is not our king. Crucify him. Away with this man. Give us the murderer. Truly, these men, they represented Israel in rejection of the one, the promised one, the Christ, who came to offer them life. Verse 13, and they cried out, crucify him. And Pilate said, why? What evil has he done? Pilate yet again confesses the innocence of Christ. In fact, becoming his defender. You see, Jesus had no legal counsel. There was no defense team surrounding him. But Pilate, is, he's so caught off guard. He's so confused. He's so outraged by this moment. And yes, certainly driven by fear that he can't help but cry out. I have to imagine he almost had to choke back the words as he said them. As he looked at him, he says, why? What has he done? Why are you demanding his death? John records for us that the religious leaders then led the people in a chant. Crucify, crucify. Pilate doesn't know what to make of this. 
What has he done? I've examined this man and I find him nothing but innocent. He's a righteous man. But Pilate looks at him and he says, take him yourself and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. And the mob shouted this time. The Greek has a picture of shouting exceedingly. The top of their lungs, over and over and over again, crucify him. It's at this point that Matthew records for us the scariest words in all of history. Matthew 24, 7. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning. He took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. And I'm told from people a whole lot smarter than me, you're not going to find any other readings of Roman judges washing their hands like this. Commentators suggest that perhaps this man called Pilate, he was just familiar enough with Jewish practice that he knew this was a way that he could speak to these people in terms that they understood. If you look at Deuteronomy 21, God is preparing his people for entering into the promised land. What he tells them there is, is if you find a slain man somewhere out in the, along the road, you find a man that's been murdered somewhere, and you don't know who's murdered this man, you don't know who's committed this crime, that the priests and the elders within that town, they're to do an investigation. They're to search high and low. They're to do everything they can to figure out who has done this thing. And yet if they can't, if they can't determine who it is that's guilty of this crime, they can't determine who it is that has slain this man, they're to sacrifice a heifer by breaking her neck. Then we read in Deuteronomy 21, verse 6 through 7, And all the elders of that city nearest to the slain man, they shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck is broken in the valley, and they shall testify, Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it shed. Do you understand the purpose of this church? The shedding of innocent blood is a serious thing. Because life is precious in the eyes of God. Because man, both man and woman, we are made in the image of God. And an attack on that which is made in the image of God is an attack on God himself. And man must give an account. He who sheds blood by the hands of man, his blood shall be shed. God demands an answer for the shedding of innocent blood. And God has entrusted certain men, certain civil authorities, certain rulers. These men are given charge that they are to investigate they're to protect and preserve life, and they're to swing the sword in punishing those that shed blood. And when those men aren't able to determine, when those men aren't able to figure out who it is that must be punished, then they themselves are to make atonement for that sin with the breaking of the neck of this heifer. And as they wash their hands, it's a symbol before God. They say, God, please, we implore you, do not allow the sin of this man to fall upon our people. Do not allow the sin of whoever it is that has murdered this man, do not allow that sin to come upon us because we didn't do it. We don't know who did it. For if we did, we would call him to justice. If we did, we would put him to death. So whether Pilate knew about this, whether Pilate specifically knew about this ordinance in God's word or whether it was just something that came to him in this moment, it's exactly what Pilate is doing. But dear friends, you must rest assured that Pilate will not get off that easy. Pilate wanted this position. It seems obvious to me that Pilate was fighting hard to hold on to this position. And while Pilate feared most Tiberius Caesar, it was God who placed him on that judgment seat. It is to God that he will someday give an answer. That's why Jesus tells Pilate in John chapter 19, he looks at him, he says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it was given to you from above. Pilate, you're a civil magistrate. 
You're placed in this position because God has placed you here. And what God demands is that you are a terror to the guilty, but that you do good for the innocent. You do whatever you will do, but you must know that it is to my Father that you will answer. You are seated in this place because my Father says it would be so. You are here today because you will do what you will do, but you must know that there is no amount of hand washing. There's no amount of outward ordinances. There's no no amount of signals that you can send to the world that will absolve you of my death, the guilt of my death. Yes, those who delivered me to you, they have the greater guilt. For they know who I am. They know the promise of God. They should recognize me and receive me as king. But Pilate, this does not find you guilty, merely washing your hands before the people. But it's at this point that the people could tell Pilate was struggling. They could tell that his conscience and his wife were getting the better of him. And so in Matthew 27, verse 25, All the people answered, his blood be upon us and our children. Believer, words have consequences. Words have meaning and words have consequences. That's why Jesus himself said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned dear friends there are no more condemning words than these the blood of jesus christ be upon us and upon our children at least when peter swore a curse upon himself it was only himself these people carelessly brought the blood of jesus christ upon their children and it was so and it was so the blood of jesus christ rests upon the jewish people dear friends i know the history I know how many men have taken teachings like this and turned it into anti-Semitism. It has led to great violence, great acts of evil throughout the world. Dear friends, we pray for the Jewish people. We know that God has not cast them away once and for all. We know that in the end, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, that all Israel will be saved. As best I can understand that teaching, it tells me that in the last days of the last days, there's going to come a time when the jealousy of Israel will be aroused And there will no longer just be a small and faithful remnant. But seemingly the whole of national Israel, ethnic Israel, they will come to faith in Jesus Christ. Jewish people in droves coming, not to be merely physical children of Father Abraham, but spiritual too. But dear friends, even if I misunderstand this teaching, even if I misunderstand what it means for all of Israel to be saved, we have the express teaching of Paul in Romans 11 that says we better not be haughty. We better not be arrogant. For if God would not delay in cutting away the natural branches, how much quicker would he cut away those that have been grafted in? That in their rebellion, that in their sin, that in their transgression, salvation comes to us. But dear friends, this does not change the reality that the blood of Christ was upon them. Just do a survey of the sermons in the book of Acts, all the sermons of the early church, and you'll find as Peter and Paul, as they go about and they preach nothing but Christ and him crucified, it's undeniable. I'm gonna read you a bunch of texts now, and I pray that you hang with me, but you need to feel the weight of this. You need to feel that this was the very core of the gospel message as the early church went and they spread this message to the ends of the earth. The very first sermon in the history of the church, Acts 2, beginning in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourself know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God has raised him up, loosing the pains of death 
because it is not possible for him to be held by it. Peter would then address this Jewish crowd about a lame beggar, a man that he had healed at the gate called Beautiful. Acts 3, verse 12, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though it is by our own power or piety that we have made this man walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, he has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. Peter and John speaking to this very same crowd about the very same event. Acts 4, beginning in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we were being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Now, apparently this teaching didn't sit well with the Sanhedrin, as you can imagine, or the people of Israel. So we read in Acts chapter 5, they've arrested the apostles yet again and told them, quit preaching this message. We read in verse 27, and when they had brought them in, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Words have consequences. Words have meaning. You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior and gave repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Church, this is the pattern all throughout the book of Acts. Go to Acts 10, go to Acts 13. Almost every sermon that we read in the book of Acts, it comes back to this truth. You people killed the author of life. You people killed the son of God. Just as these men said, the blood of Jesus Christ was upon them. And I can assure you that as the Romans marked it, marched into Jerusalem in A.D. 70, I can assure you that as the temple was destroyed, not one stone was left standing upon another. I can assure you that as women washed as their children starved to death or burned in their homes. I can assure you that as more than a million people were killed in that city. I can assure you that as hundreds of men were crucified outside the city gates, I can assure you there were some in that city on that day that said the blood of Christ is upon us. God has heard our imprecations, and he has answered. This is the wrath and judgment of God against the people who rejected his son and demanded his death. It should be no surprise to us then that Jesus, on the way to the cross, he, see, he encounters some women crying along the way. Do you remember what he said to them? Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourself and for your children. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Pilate had some words that haunted him too. I assure you that in the deepest recesses of hell, these words haunt Pilate. Pilate wished to satisfy the crowd. But the crowd was wrong. Pilate knew the crowd was wrong. Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent, that he had done nothing deserving of death. He knew that these men were acting on the basis of nothing but evil. Pilate knew that what these men desired was evil, and yet in a desire to mollify the crowd, 
in a desire to satisfy the mob, he rejected the truth and gave in. He gave them exactly what they asked for. Church, please listen to me and please listen to me well, especially you students, but even the most seasoned of believers. You need to hear these words. Justice is not determined by the mob. Righteousness is not determined by the group that shouts the loudest and says that they are the most offended. And truth is not determined by consensus. Truth is determined by God and his holy word. And you don't get a vote. The God who is timeless, the God who does not change, that which he declares is truth will always be truth. And if God sees fit to reveal to you some portion of this truth, if God sees fit to implant in your heart a desire to hang tight to this truth, dear friends, you must fight with everything you have to cling to it. You must not be shaken by the mob. You must not be intimidated by the threats. You must not be shamed by the accusations. We cannot abandon the truth. We cannot let go of the truth. We cannot become bashful about the truth because the godless world took a vote and said, no longer is he God and no longer is that truth. And yet we see this Gentile man that has been given this truth. By the grace of God, he recognizes the innocence of Jesus Christ and with that grace, he damns himself. And there are so many within that crowd as Jesus Christ, the word, the truth has come to them. And yet despite their best notions, despite their inclinations, despite what their heart was telling them, they went along with the mob. They rejected him and demanded his death. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So Pilate has Jesus scourged. Now, any of you that have seen the Passion of the Christ, you know what this looks like. Jesus would have been stripped down and then fastened to a pillar or a post. There would have been a ring on the backside of that that they could affix his hands to so that they could splay him out well. They could get full access to his body. And then two Roman soldiers on either side, each of them would have taken a whip and whip with a short wooden handle and out of that would have come many throngs many lashes of leather and within those strips of leather there would have been sharpened pieces of bone or metal or rock and then one by one they would have taken turns as they beat him again and again and again these were instruments of torture these weapons were designed to inflict maximum damage each time the whip was struck down upon Jesus' back and body, it would have dug into the flesh, and each time it was pulled out, it would have taken flesh with it. By the time these men's were, men were done, veins would have been ripped open and tendons and sinew would have been laid bare and organ and entrails. They would have been exposed. So efficient and violent was this torture that many men died before making it to the cross. And of those that did, many of them died very quickly from blood loss. This was such an inhumane treatment that women were not allowed to even witness it. So as they strapped Jesus to that post, 
came down upon his back again and again and again. This was an absolute bloodbath. It's no wonder that he could barely crawl to the cross. No wonder that he could not carry his own crossbeam to the cross. And believer, Jesus Christ endured it for you. Christian, do you understand that you are Barabbas? You didn't plan an insurrection against Rome. You rebelled against the kingdom of heaven. You did not kill an ordinary man. You rejected the Son of God. You are Barabbas. The beating that Jesus received on this day had your name written all over it. It should have been you standing ashamed before the crowd as they jeered and spit in your face. It should have been you receiving this scourging. It should have been you standing there so disfigured that you no longer looked human. So marred beyond human semblance that man couldn't even bear to look upon your face. That should have been you. Pilate wanted to satisfy the crowd, so he released Barabbas. Having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Dear friends, see the picture of substitutionary atonement. Look, I don't know what Barabbas did on the next day. I don't know what he did from this point forward. We're not told that he became a follower of Jesus Christ. The only good that may have come from Barabbas was whatever day was spared of him that point. The very next week, he might have gone right back to his old ways, right back to robbing, right back to murdering. He may have died the very next week via crucifixion. And yet I can assure you of this. I can assure you of this. Barabbas knew as Jesus received the beating, as he could barely make his way to the cross, as Jesus was hung upon that cross, Barabbas knew, I am here. I am free because he is there. I deserve to be upon that cross and he does not. That man was innocent and he was righteous and everybody knew it. But he didn't even fight it. He didn't even open his mouth and offer a defense. It was almost as if he knew he was supposed to go to the cross. It's almost as if he knew this was God's plan for his life. But dear friends, Barabbas knew. Dear friends, Barabbas did nothing but violence, nothing but evil. He deserved no goodness in his life. He knew that he himself was justly condemned to die. And so I promise you, if someone ran into Barabbas on Holy Saturday, they knew and he knew. I was condemned and now I am free. I'm alive for one reason and one reason only because that man took my place. Because that man died in my stead. This is the picture. This is the heart of the gospel. Listen, there's all kinds of theories of understanding what Jesus was doing upon that cross. There's all kinds of theories in understanding what God was doing and sending his son. But the root of it, the core of it, is this. Substitutionary penal atonement. There was a substitute. There was someone who took your place. Not only took your place, but took your punishment, took your beating, took your sin, took the wrath of God that was due upon you, and he took it. He took it specifically for the purpose of satisfying the Father's wrath, specifically to propitiate the Father towards you. He would look upon you in blessedness. He would call you a son, no longer a condemned man. This is the picture. This is the picture the Old Testament had been leading towards. With the shadows of it, we saw it in rams and lambs and bulls and doves and goats all throughout the Old Testament. But here stands the Son of God, not a dumb animal, the infinitely worthy Son of God taking the punishment, 
the full weight and wrath that God owes to sinners like you and to like me, that we would be joined to him in faith, that any that are joined to him in repentant faith, we can point to him and say, those licks were my licks. That death was my death. And the Father's satisfaction in that belongs to me. Dear friends, this is exactly what Jesus had promised. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. His life for our life. Our sin for his righteousness. That's the deal. This is the reason why he came. This is the purpose for his birth. And there is no sin great enough. There is no sin too great, even the curse. Even the curse that Peter uttered against himself. Even the curse that the Jewish people said against themselves and against their children. There is no sin, there is no curse too great that the blood of Jesus Christ cannot atone for it. Cannot pay for it. He will not joyfully trade places with you on that cross. You must trust that it will be settled. That it has been settled. That when he looks out from upon that cross and he cries out, it is finished. He meant there's nothing left. No condemnation, no punishment, no judgment, nothing but the blessings of the Father. That's the promise of Jesus Christ for any that are joined to him in repentant faith. And surely there were some there on that day of Pentecost who had also been there on the day of judgment. Surely there were some there among that crowd that were struck in their heart. They were pierced to their very soul when they heard the gospel preached by Peter. Surely there were some that in that moment had been crying out, crucify, crucify. And in that moment, as the Holy Spirit called them to life, is the first gasp of breath. This, this first cry out for air in the new life that had come by the working of the Spirit that they recognized, God, forgive us. We didn't know what we were doing. We crucified your son. We rejected our king. We have murdered the Christ only to be received, only to hear the word of God echoing back to them out of that gospel, child, you are forgiven. That death that you spilled, it has washed you clean. It is not upon you as a stain of curse. You are clean. The death that he died, he died in your place. He has borne your penalty, and now he intercedes on your behalf, day and night, night and day, taking all the work that was accomplished at the cross and constantly bringing it before the Father on your behalf. That's the promise. Dear friends, that's how you can know. That's how you can know. How can you know that you'll never be lost? How can you know that you'll never be abandoned? How can you know that you cannot wander away? How can you know that no one can rip you from your father's hands? It is this. Dear children, you've been purchased at too high a price. The most precious thing in all the universe, God's own son. He gave his son to purchase you. You think he's going to let you loose? You think he's going to give up somewhere along the way? You think he's going to want his money back? He was purchasing a people, a bride for his son. You're more precious to God than you could ever imagine. Dear friends, this is how you can know. This is how you can know that you will endure to the end. This is how you can know that God will not let you go. And so I'm pleading with you this morning. Quit looking around you at your life. Quit trying to constantly judge each day as you come to the end of it. Quit getting so caught up in looking in the mirror. Quit measuring your worship. Quit comparing yourself to the people around you. Look to the cross of Jesus Christ and find assurance. Come to the cross of Jesus Christ and see not only the stain of your sin, not only the depravity of your evil, see the love of God is it pleased him to crush his son in your place. Dear friends, that's how you know. You don't know why so many lack assurance because they're so self-focused. All they do is look at themselves or they're so other-focused. All they do is compare themselves to others. They forget to come to the cross of Jesus Christ and say, that's how much he loved me. Would he abandon me now? 
Would he who did not spare his own son, would he not freely give us all things? So you come to the cross of Jesus Christ and there you find the assurance. There you find the source of your endurance. There you find the promise that he will indeed save to the uttermost. And as you try to live this thing out, as that old sin nature continues to pop up, as that flesh continues to rear itself, you drag it to the cross. Quit trying to fight it on your own terms. Quit trying to fight it in your own ability. You drag your sin to the cross. You drag that flesh to the cross and you point there and say, you died there on that day. 2,000 years ago, you were put to death. Now die already. I have nothing to do with you. You have no hold over me any longer. Jesus Christ, the son of the most high God, he put you to death and he declared that you are finished. I'm a new creation in him. And driven by the love that I see there, the spirit that has now been implanted upon me, I have nothing to do with you. From this day forward, be gone and be dead. Dear friends, that's the way you endure. That's the way you overcome sin. That's the promise of what we see at the cross. Father God, we praise you. We praise you that another took our place. Not just a great man. Not even just a perfect man, but the God man. Only God could bear up under the weight of your infinite wrath. Only God could be a worthy enough sacrifice to spare us from hell. And so we thank you, Father, that he took our place. Father, it is my deepest desire if there's one here this morning that um, they find their hope in anything else. They find their hope in outward ordinances or works or membership in a church that, Father, you would bring them to the end of themselves and help them to look at the cross to see the substitution that took place there. Father, if there's any here that are struggling with assurance, Father, would you take them to the cross? you show them the depth of your love and your commitment to their salvation as you poured out that punishment upon your son fathers we all seek to walk lives of personal holiness and righteousness would you take us to the cross would you show us the place where our cross was killed where our sin excuse me was killed crucified put to death would you allow us to walk as free people with peace and joy and gratitude that comes from calling you Father. Father, in response to that, we seek to glorify you in your presence now as we sing songs of praise. So would you receive them now and be glorified. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.